when it comes to sex and our sexuality and gender, we're facing a very complicated group of interrelated issues. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, our views about these things are typically based on moral intuitions. And moral intuitions reside at a deeper level than our heads, our minds, our intellect. They reside in our hearts, in our guts, in our instincts. And over the recent decades, in diverse fields of study, from philosophy to neurobiology, from psychology to theology, a fundamental consensus has emerged that the way we get our moral intuitions is through story. And there are three fundamental stories our society tells that forms our sense of what's right and what's wrong when it comes to sex, sexuality, and gender. Two weeks ago, we looked at the stories our society tells us about identity. That in our age of authenticity, one of the most important things in life is to find your deepest dreams and desires and to bring those out to the world. And our sexual desires are part of that. Our sexual desires are both a marker of our true self and a primary way of expressing our true self. So you've got to be true to yourself no matter what others say. And if someone puts pressure on you to change something about this deep inner desire, they are oppressing you and they are threatening your health, your flourishing, your core personal identity. Last week we looked at the story-shaped view of freedom in our society today. Freedom, having the ability to do what we want, when we want, to be able to live however we want. And applied to sexuality, this produces three basic rules. Number one, do whatever you want as long as it's consensual. Number two, do what you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. And number three, don't tell anyone else their life choices are wrong because that's being judgmental. Some are arguing that these are the three remaining taboos in our society today with regard to sex. Do what you want as long as it's consensual. Do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And don't tell anyone else their choices are wrong. All right, final, tonight we're coming to the final story, the final of the three root stories funding our moral intuitions with regard to sexuality in our culture today. And this is the story of love, true love, romantic love, all of that stuff. And to unmask our deep intuitions about love, about romantic love, let's start in an unexpected place. Let's start on death row. In Norman Mailer's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Executioner's Song, later made into an Academy Award winning movie, there is a murderer on death row. His name is, does anybody know? Gary Gilmore. It's, it's, it's um, a novel rooted in history. He writes a letter to his girlfriend, who also is in prison. So a guy on death row writing to his girlfriend in prison, and he asks the question, what is to become of us, Nicole? I know you are wondering. And the answer is simple, 
by love, we can become more than this situation. That's the view of love that dominates our society today. Here in the West, in the long retreat of Christianity over the last several centuries, it's love that has risen to the throne once held by God. It's love that gives meaning and happiness. It's love that has the power to redeem suffering and disappointment. Love saves. Love explains and justifies and washes away and defeats suffering and injustice. It's a well-documented fact that here in our secular age, religion has declined, but faith has not. It's the object of faith that has changed. The stories our society tells are filled no longer with the power of God, now they are filled with the power of love. Take three movies. La La Land, nominated for 11 Academy Awards, tied for the highest number of all time. It won six. Shrek, another Academy Award winner. And The Notebook, not an Academy Award winner. But it has definitely gained a cult following. Now what these three movies all have in common is the power of love. They all tell the story of romantic love as the strongest force in the universe. In La La Land, with romantic love, you have the power to chase your dreams. In The Notebook, you can face and redeem and find meaning in Alzheimer's. And in Shrek, you could even marry an ogre. Now, all you need is love. Because true love burns brightly and passionately. And then it just keeps on burning until death. And then it keeps on burning beyond death. Because love, true love, is the strongest force in the universe. So over the last several centuries, with the spread of secularism, in the wasteland of Western idols, only love survives intact. It's in love we trust. Romantic love is the great gift that rescues. Find love and you can escape loneliness. Find love and you can be redeemed from insecurity. Fall in love and life has meaning. When you're in love, you're transported beyond the messy imperfections of the everyday world into havens of peace and purity. It's love that can change desperate situations. That's what our movies and our books and our songs and Instagram and Snapchat and magazines, they're all fueling this view of love. Now, where did this view of love come from? Well, its roots are definitely Christian. Its roots are in Christianity. Its roots are in the confession that God is love and that God has saved the world out of love. But while its roots are in Christianity, something happened in the high Middle Ages in France to change this story. Around the 12th century, a tradition began that was carried from France to Italy and Spain through music. It was the songs of the troubadours. And these songs, 
They took up this Christian view of love and they developed it. They focused on stories of chivalry, the idealization of women, and the uplifting ache of unconsummated desire. And so this semi-Christianized view of love, we call it the courtly love tradition, it flourished throughout medieval Europe. And it had a good run for six or seven hundred years. And then it met Jane Austen. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the way people viewed romantic love underwent a profound transformation. And this time it happened not through music, but through the novel. Suddenly... You have these stories where people find their meaning and their vocation and their fate and even their salvation. They find all of these wonderfully necessary things. They find them when they fall in love. And so throughout the rise of secularism and the long slow death of God in Western civilization over the last several centuries... While that's been going on, while secularism's been rising and God has been dying in the West, while that's been going on, we've been very busy writing novels. And these novels have been driven by some really compelling stories. And so many of these novels have been focused on romantic love. And these stories have been told so well that their particular views of romantic love have taken hold of the popular conscience and captured our imaginations. I'm talking about Jane Austen, Walter Scott, the Brontes, Dickens, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, Samuel Beckett, the list goes on and on. Through their novels, novels like Pride and Prejudice and Wuthering Heights, over the course of the late 18th century and the early 19th century, our society began to embrace a new view of life that was energized by a new view of romantic love. Now, I'm obviously simplifying a very complex thing. And I mean... I think that we need to consider, though, this kind of stretch of time. We need to see all these novels being written. We need to see the declining of religion, the rising of secularism. And we also need to wrap our mind around what else was going on during this time. The means of production were being revolutionized. Literacy was growing. Social hierarchy and the status of women were changing. The middle class was growing. Science was developing new ideas of determinism. And God, for many people, was disappearing. And in the midst of this, you have these love stories where individuals are filled with worth and potential. And you have these wonderful plots focused on love and the lover and the beloved. And no matter who they are, they are the stars of the story. So that the deep formation of these love stories on our collective psyche develops us in us this intuition that anyone, by falling in love, can become a star. They can become now one of the elect. It replaced that view. So what happened is that during the late 1700s and the 1800s, as the West was losing its faith in God, novels began to form people in the religion of romantic love. 
Look at it this way. Way back in the early days of the Greco-Roman Empire, love was a god, a goddess. And then once again, in the 19th century, love has come back with the force of a deity. And so love increasingly filled the vacuum left by the retreat of Christianity. And this carries on until roughly the 1930s. When the power of the novel to shape our imaginations and moral intuitions, it begins to be replaced by radio and advertising and movies and ultimately the internet. Now, there is so much good in this story, in this view of love. But there's also some things going on here that are not good. And before we try to parse those things and and notice them, I want to best Press pause. And I want to set this discussion of love aside for just a moment. And I want us to think about an entirely different concept. I want us to learn a particular way of looking at culture that the Bible teaches us. And then I want us to take this way of looking at culture that the Bible teaches us. And I want us to look at the story of love through the lens of this technique. So if you have a Bible, find Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not... Judge by what his eyes see and decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lion. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, what we have here is the Christian vision. Of a future free from violence and bias and war. A future where we live on this earth with genuine security and safety. No threats of violence, no injustice, no vulnerability. Life here on this earth is a world set free both from human injustice and natural calamities, natural violence. This is not hope beyond the world. This is hope for the world. And it is a foundational vision at the center of Christianity. 
God will make everything right. One day there will be, and you can feel in this passage, an entire cosmos sighing with relief. We hear it from the lambs and the wolves. And it's what we've all been waiting for in this world of ours that's grown old in sophistication and cynicism and violence. And I want to draw your attention in particular to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him, this is Jesus Christ, Shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Of Jesus shall the nations inquire. Jesus is the desire of the nations. He is what the nations of the world long for. Peace. Justice, freedom, a voice and a vote which will count, health and around and above all of these, love. Real satisfaction for the hungers of the heart. A hunger which no amount of money, fine houses, fast cars, luxury vacations or love affairs will ever begin to reach. In verse 10, we see all the nations streaming to King Jesus. And notice... They are not bowing down before a power. They are bowing before a person. God himself. A leader of human beings who is the fulfillment of their stories. And notice it says of him, the nations will inquire. Now what is it, do you think, that the nations are inquiring about? Questions of law? No. Much deeper than that. They are inquiring of Jesus. Jesus is what they're asking about. Jesus is what they've always desired. And they're discovering that. The long and particular histories and the particular promises of every nation, every tribe, has clung All of these stories of all these particular nations and tribes, what they've been telling and the pledges that they've been making and breaking, all of them they're discovering were all along leading to Jesus. This is what the last, that phrase is telling us. Whoever comes to the place of rest has reached the goal of their society, the goal of their culture, the goal of their tribe. And now, finally... As particular tribes, as particular people, as particular cultures, they can finally live. Whenever we're talking with someone about one of the many massive complicated issues regarding sexuality and gender today, we must always remember that Jesus Christ alone is the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of Of their aches, their longings, their deepest desires. The gospel really and truly does fulfill our culture's deepest aspirations. And so part of what we've been doing in these three sessions 
is we've been focusing on the stories our culture is telling regarding identity and freedom and tonight love. And the reason we're doing this is part of the reason is we need to learn to recognize the deep and long stories our culture is telling so that we can, in the words of the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, so that we can learn how to tell those stories. How to tell the story of our society, our increasingly neo-pagan society. How to tell it in terms that our society will agree with. We need to give a sympathetic telling of the story. We need, have you ever tried to tell somebody's story to them? We've got to be able to tell it in terms of the long history of promises that our society has clung to and the pledges we've made and broken. And we've got to be prepared to think all the way through this story so that we can tell the story that the person we're talking with knows you're telling my story. We're telling their story, the one they've always knew they wanted to hear. And we have to tell it so that it ends with Jesus. Not artificially ends with Jesus. Not ends with Jesus like a conjurer pulling a rabbit out of a hat. But it ends with Jesus so that he appears who he is. The truly human one. The one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The living bread through whom all of our hungers are satisfied. So the gospel you see really is everyone's stories ending. The better story of the gospel fulfills the real stories of people. But it doesn't only fulfill them, it also subverts them. The way the Christian story relates to culture is as subversive fulfillment. Fulfills and subverts. The gospel is a subversive fulfillment of the deep stories of every culture. Now this phrase, subversive fulfillment, it's a label developed by the British theologian Daniel Strange. His specialty is in the area of Christianity's relationship to other religions. And so to put the issue in his own words, non-Christian religions or non-Christian worldviews in tonight's context are essentially an idolatrous refashioning of divine revelation. They are antithetical and yet parasitic on Christian truth. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is their subversive fulfillment. So the really important insight here is that the gospel fulfills the deepest aspirations of the world, but only by contradicting the parts of those aspirations that are twistings of the truth. So now, let's take this way of thinking about culture, and let's go back to the story our culture is telling about love, the story of romantic love, and let's see how the Christian vision both fulfills it and subverts it. And to begin with, let's recognize that the Bible affirms the view of love as a uniquely powerful force. That romantic love is uniquely powerful. That it is deep in societies. For example, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is erotic love. This is romantic love. 
Love is central to the Christian story. Just by the way, the Bible starts in a wedding and ends in a wedding. It's central to the Christian story. And furthermore, let's recognize the importance and the power of romantic love in a place like, for example, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. If you have a Bible, please find this book. Unless you're a teenager, then maybe wait a few years. Song of Solomon. Yeah, I was in high school, my, uh, English my English teacher told us the school wouldn't allow us to read the Miller's Tale in Canterbury's Tales. So that night, every student in the class read the Miller's Tale. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Right at the beginning of the book, we read, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And this wasn't a Baptist talking. This was an Anglican who liked wine. <laughs> Passionate, romantic love. It tastes better than wine. It's more intoxicating than wine. It's beautiful and breathtaking and it grips us and it takes hold of us. Whether it's Pride, or Pre Pride and Prejudice or Shrek, our society's right about this. Romantic love is an extraordinary psychological state that launched the Trojan War and inspired much of the world's best and worst music and literature. And it's given so many people the most perfect days of their life. Go to the last chapter of Song of Solomon. Chapter 8. Here we find some of the most beautiful words in all of the world's literature. It's a, it's a hymn to love, romantic love. Look at verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered love for all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Can you hear it? Romantic love is so strong, even if all the elements conspired together, even if, if death joined in the conspiracy, their power would bow before the power of erotic, romantic love. And not only is it powerful, we see here that it's from God. It's flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, this helps us to see something that's good about the sexual revolution. Through the sexual revolution, God has worked to correct our society's view of eroticism, of love, of romantic love. You see, the church has unfortunately earned a reputation for being the enemy of this. And how we got that reputation as the enemy of sexual love is a long story that in some ways is understandable and in some ways is shameful. The bare outline of it goes like this. Until about 500 years ago in the West, sexual existence was divided into two classes. The higher sphere, the higher class of the celibate clergy and the religious orders. And the lower sphere, the lower class of the ordinary population where people had sex in order to make babies. But even then, you had to be careful. Because married sex was guarded by a whole set of rules. All these prohibitions against pleasure. And, a, and the constant teaching of the church was that 
okay, you're having sex to have babies, but there is a more perfect path, the celibate life. And so the church for about a thousand years promoted a culture that denigrated sexual life. And so here in the West, the church's official teaching when it came to sex was calibrated toward the value of celibacy. And this was exemplified in the monks and the nuns and the priests and the bishops. So in the Catholic Church for many centuries, the teaching about sex was that if you weren't going to live the higher calling of celibacy, if you were going to get married and have sex, then you need to know that the best sex, the pure sex, the good sex was disciplined by reason and was for the purpose of making babies. And in the popular culture, the church cultivated guilt about enjoying sex. And until just one generation ago, procreation was still thought of as the only fully justifying reason for sex. Medieval Catholic teachings were very critical of sexual pleasure even among married couples, in the process of procreating. The only proper goal of sex was pregnancy. At one point in the church, it taught, if you have too much passion in lovemaking, husband and wife, it is analogous to adultery. And this settled on the West for a millennia. Now, Don't get me wrong. It wasn't just the Catholics. In the Protestant church, we see a similar denigration for different reasons, but a denigration of sex all the same. For example, in the Victorian era, in both England and America, for Protestants, the goal of sex was not only to have babies, we got one more, to bond husband and wife to one another. Sex was healthy, and so pleasure was attached to it, but pleasure was ancillary. Now, I'm dwelling on this for two primary reasons. One, we need to know that Christians bear heavy responsibility for the counter-reaction of the sexual revolution. And two, there is much good in the sexual revolution. Two things in particular. The deep affirmation of sensuality. And number two, the equality of the sexes. The idea that men and women come together in lovemaking as true partners. So yes, love is a powerful force. And yes, it is of the very essence of life as humans. And yes, it can be from God, and yet, remember Isaiah 11.10, fulfillment, but subversive fulfillment. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. What we're seeing is that the gospel fulfills the deepest aspirations, but only by contradicting the distorted and idolatrous means the world adopts to satisfying them. And while there is so much good, so much of God in the sexual revolution, there is also a part of the story that is broken. For example, 
as powerful as romantic love is, it is still fickle. It ebbs and flows. C.S. Lewis so perceptively wrote about this. He said that while being in love is a good thing, it is not the best thing. There are many things worse than it, below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of an entire life. It's a noble feeling, but it's a feeling, and no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity and even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And yet, he goes on to say, ceasing to be in love does not mean ceasing to love. For all its wonderful power, romantic love is too fickle to form the basis of a life. Second, a second twisting in our society's story of romantic love is that by itself, romantic love can become dangerously selfish. Whenever lovers face focus on each other, to the exclusion of everybody else in the room. Have you ever been to that party? There they are over there. Whenever lovers focus on each other to the exclusion of the rest of creation and the creator, their relationship will inevitably dissolve into a self-centered relationship. The love relationship will inevitably morph into a boomerang for self-satisfaction. I love you will change its meaning into you meet my needs. I love you will come to mean you scratch my itch. And of course, that kind of love is destined for tragedy because it turns the person I love into a means for my own gratification. It's a form of self-idolatry. It says that the person I love exists to satisfy me. Now instead of lovers, you have a pair of parasites trying to feed off of one another. But the story the Bible tells about romantic love, it handles this fickleness and this selfishness. It catches it up. And it handles it. In the story the Bible tells, just like in the story our society is telling, being in love, can bring, it can bring out the best in us. It can make us generous and tender and self-forgetful. But the Bible helps us to understand that when this happens, when, when love is helping us do this, what it's actually doing is it's giving us a new vision of the other human being. Romantic love gives us an insight into that person's eternal identity. To the rest of the world, such a vision might be a delusion. You're moonstruck. You're blind. Love is blind. Parents look at a pimply introvert and wonder, why on earth their daughter wants to spend all evening talking to him on the telephone? Shakespeare said about the person who's fallen in love, they have changed eyes. But what's happening is that for just a moment, when Cupid's golden arrow hits your heart, and in an instant the world around you is transformed, you crave union with your beloved. You want somehow to crawl into each other. Have you ever heard a parent say to a little baby, I could just eat you up? Like, that, it's, it, it really is a remarkable thing. It's just like, I want to draw you into my... That's how much I love you. I want, I want union with you. 
Unless it's some freakish cannibal. But I think that... (laughs) In that moment, you have the God-given ability to see the best in the other person. To ignore and completely forgive their flaws. To bask in endless fascination. And when you have that, you are getting a foretaste of how God looks at you. That's what God, he's in love with you. And you're not only getting a foretaste of how God looks at you, you are getting a foretaste of how we will one day view every single resurrected person. It's a glimpse into how God views us and we will one day all view each other. Romantic love does not distort our vision. It corrects it. It, it, In a very narrow way, the Bible uses explicit romantic images to describe love, God's love for us. What we feel in in passing for one person, God feels eternally for everyone. For all his sons and daughters, if we receive romantic love, not as an end in itself, but as God's gift, a shining grace, it can become like a shaft of light beckoning us toward what we will someday experience more fully as resurrected beings. I cannot love every person in my neighborhood, let alone every person on the planet, in the way I love my wife. I have neither the capacity nor the desire. (laughs) But someday, I will. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. He describes the amazing gift of romantic love. How awesome it is in power. And here are his words. In one high bound, it has overleaped the massive wall of my selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic. It has tossed personal happiness aside as triviality and planted the interest of another person in the very center of my being. Spontaneously and without effort, we have fulfilled the law. I love my neighbor as myself, finally. It is an image, he says, a foretaste of what we must become to all if love, capital L, himself rules in us without a rival. It is even, if we can use it well, a preparation for that day. Now here's a subtle but serious difference between the Christian vision of romantic love and the vision we get from our secular age. And it's a subtlety that is so well displayed in Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow. And I learned this from an essay by the great Marty Eads, which many of you know. In Jaber Crow, we see that romantic longing is a starting point, not an end point. As a starting point, it can lead to a far more encompassing human love. It can even lead to salvation itself. Jaber Crow is a theology of romantic love, of romantic love as suffering unto salvation. It's a passion narrative. So I think that, there's, that that's the first of two places where our society almost gets it. But Christianity gets it better. 
Our society's approach to love is distorted and idolatrous because it doesn't recognize the true endpoint of romantic love. It is God. And second, the second flaw in our society's views of love is the opposite of the one I just pointed out. Instead of failing to see the goal of love, the second problem is that our society has cut off romantic love from its source. What I mean is that in our secular age, it's love that carries the burden of achieving what, in the Christian story, only God can achieve. And this is too much of a burden. We've left God out of the picture, and so now we've looked to love to do what God can do. Now, the key issue here can be neatly expressed in a clever wordplay that I'm going to steal from a guy by the name of Peter Lightheart. In the story of our secular age, what we're, what we're being told about love, the Christian confession of faith is that the God of love saves us. But in our secular age, this has been replaced by another confession of faith, that love saves us. And this is a shift from the Christian confession of faith that God is love to the secular confession of faith that love is God. And we can see this best when we compare beauty and the beast with the voyage of the dawn treader one of C.S. Lewis's novels. Now, let's start with Beauty and the Beast. It's Belle's love that has the power to break the spell and transform the beast back into a man. Look, if you haven't watched the movie or read the book, that's your fault. Here's, here's what it is, all right? You've had enough time. Now, that is a prime example of a story our society tells over and over and over about love. That love, romantic love, human romantic love, has the power to save us. It has the power to redeem a beast and to make him into a prince. And if you haven't seen the recent Disney movie of it, it's wonderful. It's so beautiful. Our family went to see it in the movies more than once. Love has this beautiful power to turn the beast into a prince and it has the power to redeem an extramarital affair if there's true love then you can make that right and it has the power to redeem a couple's choice to cohabitate if they love then it's right and it has the power to make same-sex marriage good and true now compare that story to the way C.S. Lewis tells the exact same myth in the voyage of the dawn treader the scene starts with uh Eustace, a rotten boy who has come upon a large fortune and he falls asleep with his treasure and when he awakes, Eustace is no longer a boy but he's a, a dragon. It's, see, it's Beauty and the Beast all over again. He's turned into a beast. The outward manifestation of his inner greed and selfishness. So this is the same basic plot line. Eustace has become a beast, and he tries to strip the dragon skin off with his dragon claws, and just like in Beauty and the Beast, he can't save himself. No matter how hard he tries, there's just more dragon skin underneath. And then what happens in the voyage of the Dawn Treader? Well, in mercy and compassion, Aslan arrives. God. 
And he leads the dragoned Eustace to a well at the center of a garden. And Eustace desperately wants to get in. But before he can get in, Aslan says, and I'm going to read it to you. Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like belly-o, but... It's British. It hurts like belly-o, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Edmund said, I know exactly what you mean. Eustace says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself. The other three times only they, they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on. And threw me into the water. It's a beautiful image of baptism. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And soon, as, as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Do you see? The Christian version of redemption is different. It's better. Only God himself can turn a beast into a boy. And we've forgotten that because we're drunk on the stories our society is telling us. And the stories our society is telling us has formed our moral intuitions. Because romantic love cannot redeem or restore ourselves or anyone else. We're expecting too much from it. We've cut it off from its source and from its end. It is powerful. It can point us down the path. It can point us to God. But it is God's love. His sometimes painful, sometimes brutal love. This is the only force on earth that can save us and restore us. That can turn us beast into true humans. So to wrap this up, whether it's beauty in the beast or the notebook, our society is telling these amazing stories that show us true love as the most powerful force in the universe. And it's the force that has the power to overcome suffering and redeem a death row experience and disappointment. And through it, we can conquer any obstacle and justify any relationship and any action and raise the dead and transform beasts into human beings. But this is expecting far too much from something so fickle and so powerfully selfish. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the subversive fulfillment of our society's love stories. And beginning next week, we'll focus our attention on the Christian vision of sexuality. And we're going to hear a far, far better story.